Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 53. I'm your host, Paul, and today we've got an interesting title for our podcast. The Stink in Farts Controls Blood Pressure. Other stories we'll be looking at today include Heavy Water and the Norwegians, Astronauts Could Mix Do-It-Yourself Concrete for Cheap on the Moon Base, and 1,700-year-old Iron Age wooden artefacts are found in Sweden. And from health, we get the somewhat disturbing story about doctors who get death diagnosis tips. Hmm. A computer circuit has been built for brain cells, and German researchers search for a mood weather link. Lack of sunlight could lead to male infertility. The search is on for caskets unearthed by Ike. And those and other stories in episode 53 of Origins. And we'll begin today with our lead story for a change. The stink in farts controls blood pressure. And this comes from Amelia Thomas from thelivescience.com. 
and you'll notice that I resisted the temptation to put in some fart sound effects. Sensibility rules today. A smelly rotten egg gas in farts controls blood pressure in mice, a new study finds. The unpleasant aroma of the gas called hydrogen sulphide can be a little too familiar as it is expelled by bacteria living in the human colon and eventually makes its way, well, out. The new research found that cells lining the mice's blood vessels naturally make the gas and this action can help keep the rodent's blood pressure low by relaxing the blood vessels to prevent hypertension or high blood pressure. This gas is no doubt produced in cells lining human blood vessels too, the researchers said. Now that we know hydrogen sulphide's role in regulating blood pressure, it may be possible to design drug therapies that enhance its formation as an alternative to the current methods of treatment for hypertension, said Johns Hopkins neuroscientist Solomon H. Snyder, a co-author of the study detailed in the October 24th issue of the journal Science. Snyder and his colleagues compared normal mice to mice that were missing a gene for an enzyme known as CSE, long suspected as being responsible for making hydrogen sulphide. As they measured hydrogen sulphide levels taken from tissues of the CSE-deficient mice, the scientists found that the gas was depleted in the cardiovascular systems of the altered mice. By contrast, normal mice had higher levels of the gas, thereby showing the hydrogen sulphide is naturally made by mammalian tissues using CSE. Next, the mice were subject to higher blood pressures comparable to serious hypertension in humans. Scientists had them respond to a chemical called methacholine that relaxes normal blood vessels. The blood vessels of the CSE-lacking mice hardly relaxed, indicating that hydrogen sulphide is a huge contender for regulating blood pressure. Hydrogen sulphide is the most recently discovered member of a family of gastrotransmitters, small molecules inside our bodies with important physiological functions. This study is the first to reveal that the CSE enzyme that triggers hydrogen sulphide is activated itself in the same way as other enzymes when they trigger their respective gasotransmitter, such as a nitric oxide forming enzyme that also regulates blood pressure, Dr. Snyder said. Because gasotransmitters are common in mammals all over the evolutionary tree, these findings on the importance of hydrogen sulphide are thought to have broad implications to human diseases such as diabetes and neurodegenerative diseases. Our second story today is written by Colin Barris, who writes for the abcnews.go.com website, and it's from their technology and science section. Astronauts could mix do-it-yourself concrete for a cheap moon base. Instead of water, sulphur could bind together moon dust. A lunar base could be built from waterless concrete composed entirely of moon dust, according to US researchers. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter will next year scout out a good landing site ahead of the 2020 mission that will put US astronauts back on the Moon. A four-strong team will spend seven days on the lunar surface, 
but NASA hopes to eventually have long-term moon bases. However, building permanent structures on the moon would be astronomically expensive, said Hussam Tutanji, a civil engineer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville in the US. It costs a tremendous amount of money to take even one kilogram of material to the moon, he says. Depending on who you talk to, the cost could be $50,000 to $100,000. Tutanji thinks these costs could be sidestepped by making concrete from moon dust and moon dust alone. Here on Earth, concrete is made from a pebbly aggregate bound together by water and cement. Lunar concrete could be made using plentiful moon dust as the aggregate and binding it together using sulphur purified from lunar soil. You want the sulphur to be in a liquid or semi-liquid form to work as a binding agent, says Tutanji, which requires heating it to between 130 and 140 degrees centigrade. Once cooled, concrete made in that way quickly hardens like rock. Within an hour, you get an ultimate strength concrete, Tutanji said. With normal concrete, you have to wait seven days. In extreme cases, even 28 days to get maximum strength. To test the properties of lunar concrete, Tutanji and Richard Grugel, a geological engineer at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, also in Huntsville, used a simulated lunar soil. They added 35 grams of purified sulfur to every 100 grams of dust and cast the mix into a number of small cubes, about 5 centimetres on a side. They were exposed to 50 cycles of Sophia temperature changes, each time frozen down to minus 27 degrees centigrade and then warmed back up to room temperature. Even after the treatment, the concrete could withstand compressive pressures of 17 megapascals or roughly 170 times atmospheric pressure. If the material is reinforced with silica, which can also be derived from the moon dust, this can be raised to around 20 megapascals. Peter Chen of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, devised his own form of waterless concrete earlier this year, using epoxy as the binder. Tutanji and Grugel are of course correct in stating that, due to the high cost of going to the moon, the amount of material to be transported must be kept to a minimum, he says. Chen's concrete would require a supply of epoxy to be shipped to the moon, he concedes, but says once that is done, it is simpler to make. As well as a device to scoop up the soil and a mixer to combine the soil and the epoxy, Tutanji and Grugel's concrete would also require a power source to bake sulphur out of the lunar soil and melt the concrete mixture, Chen points out. But Tutanji thinks that these energy costs would still be lower than the costs of transporting raw material to the moon although he has not worked out the logistics of powering the sulphur extraction and melting. In the past, researchers have claimed that temperatures of more than 1,000 degrees Celsius could be reached using solar furnaces that concentrate sunlight.
As you're probably aware by now, I'm offering two versions of Origins to the listeners. One is the free version which you're listening to now, which is going to remain the same as it always has been. The same number of stories, the same time frame, the same variety of topics and that sort of thing. I'm also offering an extended version which is approximately twice the length of this one. This one will be available via subscription through the Origins website. So what you need to do if you want to subscribe to this is to go to www.origins.info and when you get there, click on the subscribe button. That will take you to PayPal and you can create a subscription to the podcast. It's only $1 a week or $4 a month. And when you subscribe, the PayPal website will take you to another webpage which has the feed that you require to listen to the podcast located on it. I'll also eventually send you an email in a few hours confirming the whole thing. On this webpage, it gives you some instructions on what to do with the feed, using iTunes as the example, and then all you have to do in a program like iTunes is just click on the refresh button and the new versions of this podcast will come up for you to download. So if you're interested, visit www.origins.info and click on the subscribe button. If you do become a subscriber and then you wish to unsubscribe, located on the same website is an unsubscribe button that will take you through the process of unsubscribing. And just for interest's sake, I'm just going to go through some of the topics in today's extended version of Origins. We'll be looking at Astoria from Jamaica that has puzzled people by the theft of a beach, blue bananas surprise scientists, and a giant spider-eating bird has been caught on camera. There is conjecture that Mars's craters might be scars from a fallen moon, and Buzz Aldrin says that Mars pioneers should stay there permanently. Stone Age man took drugs, says scientists, and scientists create organic wires for use inside the human body, and finally, typhoons bury vast amounts of carbon dioxide. So those stories and some more will be available in the extended version of Origins, as well as the stories from the free version. And from the edition.cnn.com website comes the unusual story entitled The Search is on for Caskets Unearthed. By Ike. And this story comes from the Marsh of Cameron Parish in Louisiana. Joe Johnson craned his neck from the airboat as it circled a patch of brown marsh grass. The runaway coffin was not where it was supposed to be. Johnson pulled up to a pile of rocks, killed the motor and hopped out. After a few minutes of scouring along the tall reed-like grass, he flagged down two fishermen. Can you possibly take me along the shoreline? Johnson asked. I'm looking for a casket. Beyond the unusual, dismal rebuilding, Hurricane Ike left another grim task when it struck last month. Its 13-foot storm surge washed an estimated 200 caskets out of their graves. Ripping through most of Cameron Parish's 47 cemeteries and others in southwest Louisiana and coastal Texas, some coffins floated miles into the marsh. At Hollywood Cemetery in Orange, Texas, Ike unearthed about a hundred caskets. Dozens more were disgorged in hard-hit Galveston. 
Officials in coastal areas have long struggled with interring the dead, as caskets buried in low-lying areas are susceptible to being belched up by floodwaters. Some areas, most notably New Orleans, house the dead in above-ground crypts to keep them from drifting away in storms. For many of the dead forced up by Ike, it wasn't their first disturbance. About 80% of the caskets in southwest Louisiana displaced by Ike were rousted by Hurricane Rita just three years earlier, said Zeb Johnson, the deputy coroner who headed casket recovery efforts for Rita and Ike. Of the caskets ejected by Rita in September 2005, 335 were found and reburied, he said. 18 were never found. Our mother came out for Rita, and now she came out for Ike, said Deborah Dyson, a commercial fisher whose house in Cameron was destroyed by Ike. Dyson said coffins holding her brother-in-law and cousin were also heaved out by Rita. Ike was worse. The storm thrust out caskets containing her mother, brother-in-law, cousin, niece, three uncles and two aunts. The one containing Dyson's mother floated to the same spot it came to rest after Rita, 22 miles from the cemetery. Only this time it didn't take nine months to find it. It's hard to lose your home, but the first stop you make is that cemetery, just to make sure they're still there. And it's heartbreaking when they're not, said Marilyn Dyson Elizondo, Dyson's sister who lives in Dayton, Texas. Zeb Johnson leads a team of two employees, volunteer boat pilots and state prisoners, to search hundreds of miles of marsh with loaned equipment and hauls coffins back to the shore. The work is backbreaking, with caskets weighed down by mud in swampy areas teeming with alligators and snakes and the stench of rotting marsh grass. It's a job that has to be done, said Joe Johnson, a funeral director and embalmer from Lake Charles, who is not related to the deputy coroner. Joe Johnson's half-hour ride with the fishermen didn't turn up the pink casket reported to the coroner's office, like so many other tips that don't pan out. An hour later, however... He returned with another coffin found in thick grass near a canal bank. A hole was drilled into the silver metal container to drain out marsh muck and lighten the load for the airboat. Prisoners pulling the casket from the boat tipped it again to empty out more of the fetid water. The coffin was trucked to the city coliseum in Lake Charles where the Federal Emergency Management Agency was providing refrigerated trucks to hold caskets until reburial arrangements could be made. It's a slow process, Zeb Johnson said. The parish coroner's office is footing most of the search and recovery bill, which hasn't been tallied. But reburying the dead is estimated to cost as much as $100,000 on top of the recovery costs, with much of the money needed for new caskets and vaults. Zeb Johnson wasn't sure who'll cover that price tag, so he wasn't sure when reburial would begin. More than 140 coffins had been found by Wednesday and about 20 others that didn't stray far from their burial sites were quickly reburied. Zeb Johnson didn't expect to find all of the two dozen or more that remain missing. The first day we found caskets that had floated 30 miles from their cemeteries, he said. You just have caskets floating out in the marsh. At least seven of these caskets ended up in Texas, kind of like boats. They just got out in the currents from the high waters and carried them to Texas. The identification work in many instances is easier this time around. 
Bodies found after Rita were tagged with special markers, as were the silver metal coffins in which they were reburied. The coffins include a scroll with the deceased's name, where they were buried and other information. A few families are considering reburials on higher grounds. Cameron Parish's government has proposed requiring deeper burials. Elizondo, whose family awaits word on the missing Dyson caskets, said her brother was buried in January in a deeper vault than those that housed her missing relatives. Ike didn't disturb her brother, so Elizondo wants to rebury her mother the same way, though it is more expensive. It's worth it. That way we have the peace of mind that mum won't be gone again, Elizondo said. We've even offered to do the backhoe ourselves. We just don't want her coming back up again. And although it might be a little bit morbid, we're doing a second story about death and how in Britain they are rewriting the rules on when you are dead and when you are not because of changed circumstances in medical practices these days. So from the bbc.co.uk website, doctors get diagnosis tips for death. Doctors are being given tips to help them diagnose when someone is dead. Although a patient coming back from the dead is rare, there is enough ambiguity in diagnosing death that doctors need guidance, experts have decided. Rapid advances in life support, where machines take over the breathing of the moribund, have complicated the diagnosis, for example. The Academy of Medical Royal College's UK guidelines cover situations like hypothermia and drug-induced coma. There have been instances when people exposed to extreme cold have been presumed dead but have later shown signs of life again when their core body temperature had risen. Sedative drugs can also make a person to appear to be dead when they are not. The report's author, anaesthetist Sir Peter Simpson, said diagnosing death could be difficult. There are issues when people die in unusual circumstances with unusual sedative drugs on board or other extraneous things like low body temperature when it is inappropriate to confirm death. This new guidance for the first time clearly spells out when it is appropriate to diagnose death. Diagnosing death in whatever circumstances is a sensitive issue, which comes at a very distressing time for everyone. We hope that the detailed way in which the working party has addressed the issues will give help and confidence to all concerned. The guidelines say the definition of death should be regarded as the irreversible loss of the capacity for consciousness, combined with the irreversible loss of the capacity to breathe. They replace existing guidance on brain death and include new advice on cardiac death. The authors also decided it was important to separate completely the diagnosis and confirmation of death 
from anything to do with the issues surrounding organ donation and transplantation. This was to avoid any concern that the diagnosis is influenced by the desperate need for life-saving donor organs, which are in short supply. Professor Dame Carol Black, Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, said, I am confident that by addressing the ambiguities of the old code, together with issues that have arisen as a result of new areas of clinical practice in the law, this new guidance will help both medical and nursing staff and equally our patients feel confident in the diagnosis and confirmation of death and its consequences. And moving away from the topic of death, thank goodness, German researchers search for a mood weather link. And this is an article by Sam Ola Oko, and it's from the ecoworldly.com website. Researchers in Germany are trying to understand the connection between weather conditions and human emotion. Stress is part of day-to-day life and we can attribute it to lots of things, including the weather. If you feel irritable or stressed for missing your daily walk on a rainy afternoon when it's just supposed to be cool, you are probably very right in blaming the weather. However, a new study suggests that as a rule of thumb, the weather might really give us more to grumble about than to be happy about. A research team at Humboldt University in Germany claim in a study published in the October issue of the Emotions Journal that temperature, wind and sunlight all have an effect on negative moods, with sunlight seemingly playing a significant role on how tired people say they were. On the other hand, Temperature, wind, sunlight, precipitation, air pressure and how long the days were had no significant effect on positive moods, contrary to conventional wisdom. During the study led by Professor Jap Dennison, 1,233 participants, most of them women in the age bracket of 13 to 68, were given a daily online diary and asked to respond to a questionnaire that measured tiredness as well as positive and negative mood. The researchers examined how much the participants socialised and slept. They also got feedback on those conditions which might affect mood after collecting daily weather data and matching it to the participants' zip codes. Wind was found to have more of a negative effect on mood in spring and summer than in fall and winter. Sunlight had a mitigating effect on whether people reported they were tired on days when it rained. The responses were varied but the researchers think a mood weather link may still exist for individuals. In further studies, researchers may update the survey questions to learn how long participants spent outdoors, which may be crucial information, they said.
And following on similar lines to the previous story comes this story, and it's from the www.news.com.au website. And it's entitled, A Lack of Sunlight Has Been Linked to Male Infertility. And it's written by Tamara McLean. An Australian infertility study has revealed disturbing levels of vitamin D deficiency among men who are unable to impregnate their partners. The discovery surprised Sydney researchers investigating the incidence of DNA fragmentation of sperm, a significant factor in male infertility. Sunlight is the major source of vitamin D, which helps regulate levels of calcium and phosphorus to generate healthy bones. Fertility specialist Dr Anne Clark screened the blood of almost 800 men with fertility problems, finding almost a third of them had lower than normal levels of vitamin D. In a significant number of these men, there were also elevated levels of homocysteine, an amino acid in the blood associated with cell toxicity and deficiency in folate, which is essential for healthy new cells, said Dr Clark, medical director of the treatment centre Fertility First. Men in the study group who agreed to make lifestyle changes and take dietary supplements had surprisingly good fertility outcomes. Dr Clark said the study's results were unexpected. Vitamin D and folate deficiency are known to be associated with infertility in women, but the outcomes of the screening among men in our study group came as a complete surprise. Dr Clark said concerns about skin cancer could be a contributing factor to vitamin D deficiency among men, along with work and lifestyle choices, avoiding too much direct sunlight exposure. If that is the case, one wonders if the outcomes in the study group also raise the possibility of significant vitamin D deficiency in the broader public and its effect on fertility levels, she said. Of the 794 men tested, 58% were shown to have high levels of DNA fragmentation, according to results to be presented at a national fertility conference in Brisbane tomorrow. About 100 of the men agreed to quit smoking, minimise or stop their intake of caffeine and alcohol, reduce weight and take a three-month course of vitamins and antioxidants before commencing fertility treatment. Most significantly improved their sperm quality and about 40% went on to achieve a clinical pregnancy with 11 occurring naturally. The results clearly show that lifestyle changes and dietary supplements can be beneficial for the conception of a healthy ongoing pregnancy, Dr Clark said. I found this study quite interesting because I live close by to where this study was uh, taken and I live in the city where the study is going to be reported. We are taught as children here to wear hats, to cover up, to wear sunscreen because where I live in Queensland we have the highest rates of skin cancer in the world due to our subtropical climate. So we probably are getting smaller amounts of vitamin D from the sun than we normally would because we're covered up so much. So maybe a little bit of sunlight is a beneficial thing. Something they really need to look into and obviously requires some further study. In this episode of Origins, we have concentrated a bit on health and medicine issues and there's a couple more stories along those lines as well. But for a change of pace, let's go to the damninteresting.com. Heavy Water and the Norwegians. And this is a story written by Alan Bellows back in 2007. 
On the 19th of November 1942, a pair of Royal Air Force Halifax bombers shouldered their way through the thick winter clouds over Norway, with troop carrying assault gliders in tow. Inside each glider, a payload of professional saboteurs from the 1st British Airborne Division weathered a rough ride as the planes approached their intended landing site on frozen Lake Molstvatten. Somewhere in the snow-encased hills below, a team of Norwegian commandos vigilantly awaited their arrival. The ultimate objective of the joint mission was to penetrate and incapacitate the Vermork hydroelectric plant, a fortified Nazi facility nestled high in the mountains of Norway. Though the plant's original purpose had been the production of electricity and fertiliser, the German occupiers were capitalising on the facility's ability to collect large amounts of heavy water, a key ingredient in the Nazi effort to develop an atomic bomb. Scientists at Vermork first observed the curious heavy water in 1934 when it appeared as a byproduct of their revised ammonia production process. Physically and chemically, the substance is similar to ordinary water, but while the hydrogen atoms in normal H2O consist of one proton and one electron, many of the hydrogen atoms in heavy water have the added weight of a neutron, an isotope known as deuterium. This deuterium oxide, or D2O, does exist in water naturally, though its ratio is normally only about one part in 41 million, so it had not been previously observed in significant quantities. For eight years, Vermox scientists had been collecting the exotic liquid for scientific scrutiny, supplying samples to the world's researchers for basic experiments. The Nazis' interest, however, was considerably more sinister. In the late 1930s, a group of German physicists discovered that certain rare isotopes of uranium are fissile, meaning that their nuclei become unstable and split when they absorb an extra neutron. The nucleus shatters into two smaller nuclei, which repel one another with great energy due to their mutually repulsive electric charges, and shrapnel consisting of fast-moving free neutrons. Soon scientists realised that a chain reaction would be possible inside a clump of fissionable material since the neutrons spawned during one fission could trigger subsequent fissions and those would trigger more fissions and so on. Depending on the conditions, this could produce a long-lived source of heat and neutrons or a short-lived source of exploding and death. They also speculated that a self-sustaining chain reaction would be easier to maintain if they could identify a substance able to slow down the loose neutrons to increase their chances of being absorbed. The nuclear Nazis identified Norway's heavy water as one of the best candidates to act as this neutron moderator. So when German forces invaded in 1940, the Vermork plant was an asset they were quick to snatch. Under tightened security, the German scientists doubled the heavy water production capacity and began shipping barrels of the material back to the weapons laboratories in Berlin. The Norwegian civilian workers knew nothing of nuclear bombs or neutron moderators, 
but the Nazis' conspicuous interest in the substance promoted members of the resistance to report the activity to British intelligence. By 1942, the Allied leaders were certain that heavy water was a critical component in Hitler's efforts to produce an atomic weapon. Such neutron moderators were not necessary in atomic bombs, but the German physicists hoped to use heavy water to moderate a sustained reaction within their stash of rare uranium-235. They could then expose nuggets of the most common uranium isotope, uranium-238, to slow neutrons spewing out of the reactor, allowing some of the uranium nuclei to slurp up an extra neutron to become uranium-239. U-239 atoms tend to undergo beta decay a couple of times over the course of a few days, finally resulting in weapons-grade plutonium-239. The Allies could not sit idly by as Hitler's henchmen made progress in nuclear weaponry, otherwise the war was sure to come to an abrupt and disagreeable end. The British Royal Air Force considered a nighttime bombing raid on the Vermorque to be unrealistic, so a covert ground assault was mounted. On November 19, 1942, 30 Royal Engineers crowded into a pair of troop gliders and rode to the frozen landscape of Norway, towed behind Halifax bombers. In the mountains near the power plant, an advanced team of Norwegian commandos waited near the landing zone while the plane struggled through the soupy skies. As the drone of aircraft engines crept over the horizon towards Jens Anton Paulsen and his three men, there was a dull explosion in the distance. Once its echoes faded, only one aircraft could be heard. One of the Halifax bombers had struck a cloud-obscured mountain. The glider pilot, who had managed to cast off from his ill-fated tug at the last moment, executed the most graceful crash he could, given the mountainous terrain. The remaining airplane circled the area with its own glider in tow as the crew struggled fruitlessly to contact the landing beacon. Eventually they were forced to give up due to low fuel, but as the bomber set off towards home, its tow line broke and sent the second glider diving into the snowy hills. The Germans wasted no time dispatching Gestapo troops to investigate the commotion. Paulsen and his Norwegian resistance fighters knew they could not reach the distant crash sites ahead of the Germans, so they retreated to their mountain hideaway to await instructions. For three long months, the men subsisted on whatever moss and lichen they were able to scrounge in the sub-zero temperatures, their diets punctuated by the occasional bit of edible wildlife. Meanwhile, the survivors from the crashed gliders were captured, questioned, tortured and executed under Hitler's top-secret commando order, which stipulated that all enemy commandos were to be put to death without exception. On the 19th of February 1943, six of the Norwegian's countrymen finally arrived by parachute with a fresh supply of food, weapons and explosives from their British supporters. Following an exchange of greetings, Joachim Ronenberg took command of the group and laid out their attack plan. 
Once everyone had recuperated, the ten Norwegian men strapped on their skis and set out armed with rifles, submachine guns, chloroform rags and cyanide suicide pills. Though they had been given no specific details regarding the power plant's purpose, the men had been assured that its destruction would prevent Hitler from gaining the ability to smash entire cities with a single strike. At three o'clock in the morning on the 28th of February, the gang of intrepid Norwegians approached their target. The Vermork hydroelectric plant was perched on the edge of a 600-foot cliff, like a fairy tale fortress, and accessible via a 240-foot-long bridge which spanned a deep ravine. The area was peppered with mines, and the bridge itself was well guarded and brightly lit. Rather than tangle with sentries and landmines, the force elected to descend into the gorge and clamber up the cliff on the other side. The resistance fighters soberly exchanged wishes of good luck and then skied down to the ravine floor. After completing the long and treacherous climb up the icy cliff, Nut Hauklud took command of five of the men and broke off to assume covering positions outside the German barracks. The other four split into two demolition teams, each with a full set of explosives in case one of the teams was unable to reach the target. The four men headed to a basement door, which they had been told was left unlocked, but the undercover operative in charge of the task had fallen ill and missed work that day. The two teams separated to seek alternate points of ingress. Joachim Ronenberg and his partner Frederick Kaiser soon located a hatch which allowed access to a narrow shaft full of wires and pipes, but the men discovered that there was sufficient room to squeeze through. As the factory's machinery softly grumbled, the pair slowly crawled through the long duct while pushing their explosives ahead of them. At the end of the tunnel, the men climbed down a ladder and surveyed their target a long row of metallic cylinders lining the wall of the heavy water concentration room. The two raiders sprang into the compartment and caught the lone night watchman completely by surprise. He eagerly complied with their orders to raise his hands, then stood trembling as the armed intruders locked all the doors leading into the room. Ronenberg dashed over to the heavy water tanks and immediately began to place his 18 explosive charges. As Ronenberg worked, the factory's low, steady hum was punctured by the sound of shattering glass from the far side of the room. He and Kaiser spun around with weapons at the ready. Through the window emerged the two men of the other demolition team, having been unable to find a more suitable entrance. Together, the men set and checked the series of charges and laid fuses which had been cut to provide a delay of only 30 seconds. A Norwegian civilian wandered into the room and was astonished to see such a clutch of commandos putting the finishing touches on their demolition charges. He obediently thrust his arms into the air and joined his captive colleague. Ronenberg lit the bomb's fuses and quietly counted to ten. He then ordered the anxiety-stricken prisoners to run upstairs as fast as they could. 
Hoping to prevent reprisals against the local populace, the raiders dropped a British machine gun on the floor to disguise the attack as the work of British agents. The demolition teams rejoined their comrades outside and they together dashed away at full speed. After several long moments, a muffled thud was heard from the Vermork building behind them. 3,000 pounds of D2O sloshed out of the damaged tanks and into the factory's drains, destroying four months' worth of production and severely crippling the heavy water-gathering apparatus. By the time the Germans realised they were under attack, the ten Norwegian men had donned their skis and slipped away to the safety of the mountains. The saboteurs had successfully silenced the water plant but German engineers began repairs immediately and within five months their heavy water collectors were back in action. By the following winter the Allies had the means to attack the target by air and during one long day in November 1943 143 American B-17s ambled over the horizon and pounded the Vermork complex area with over 700 bombs. Due to the terrain, many of the bombs missed and most of the structure managed to remain intact. But the forceful series of attacks persuaded the Germans to abandon the plant. In a last-ditch effort to salvage the remains of the operation, the Nazi scientists loaded their massive bounty of heavy water into a rail car. Under the care of a large guard detail, the precious deuterium oxide began its journey to Berlin. The armed procession boarded a railcar ferry to carry it across Lake Tinzhou, and as the boat crossed the deepest portion of the lake, there was a sharp bang below the decks. The ferry foundered and sank, dragging the bulk of Germany's atomic bomb program into a deep and watery grave. The Norwegian saboteur, Nut Halklid, the man who led the covering team on the raid against Vermork, had learned of the plans to move the cargo and smuggled a makeshift time bomb aboard the ferry before the Germans arrived. Unfortunately, 14 civilians were killed when the boat sank, but the resistance leaders reasoned that these losses were acceptable, considering the thousands of lives that would have been forfeit if Hitler's nuclear program had come to fruition. Though the Norwegians' handiwork did not manage to completely halt the progress of the Nazis' atomic bomb project, it created significant stumbling blocks. According to some controversial reports, the Nazis did manage to build and test a small nuclear device just before the war ended. But it was reportedly a crude design far inferior to the bombs dropped on Japan some months later by the US. In any case, Nazi Germany certainly possessed the knowledge and skills necessary to construct a bomb. They merely lacked the resources. In modern history there are few examples of such small works of sabotage leading to such dramatic effect. By some estimations, the raids at Vermork were all that prevented Hitler from gaining control over Europe and ruling with a plutonium fist. Indeed, had the Nazis worked unhindered, the world's first atomic mushroom cloud may have loomed over London by the mid-1940s. In respect, these stalwart saboteurs and their daring mission in the mountains of Norway may have spared the world 
from a far worse fate. And coming up in a few moments is a story from the technology.newscientist.com website. Computer circuit built from brain cells. For all its sophistication and power, your brain is built from unreliable components. One neuron can successfully provoke a signal in another only 40% of the time. This lack of efficiency frustrates neuroengineers trying to build networks of brain cells to interface with electronics or repair damaged nervous systems. Our brains combine neurons into heavily connected groups to unite their 40% reliability into a much more reliable whole. Now, human engineers working with neurons in the lab have achieved the same trick, building reliable digital logic gates that perform like those inside electronics. Elisha Moses at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel and his students Ofer Fineman and Asaf Rotem have developed a way to control the growth pattern of neurons to build reliable circuits that use neurons rather than wires. The starting point is a glass plate coated with cell repellent material. The desired circuit pattern is scratched into this coating and then coated with a cell-friendly adhesive. Unable to gain purchase on most of the plate, the cells are forced to grow in the scratched areas. The scratched paths are thin enough to force the neurons to grow along them in one direction only, forming straight wire-like connections around the circuit. Using this method, the researchers built a device that acts like an AND logic gate, producing an output only when it receives two inputs. The gate is made from a network of neurons in a square shape, approximately 900 micrometers on a side. Three of the sides form a horseshoe, 150 micrometers wide, and packed with neurons. On the fourth side, an isolated neuron island is linked to the other side by two thinner bridges. Neurons send their wire-like extensions that carry signals, axons, across those narrow bridges to the neuron island. When stimulated with a small dose of a drug, the neurons send signals around the circuit. An ion blocker is used in the centre of the horseshoe to electrically isolate one side from the other. By changing the width of the bridges, the researchers are able to control how many axons link to the neuron island and tune their device to behave like an AND gate. The neurons on the island only produce an output after receiving signals through both of the thin bridges. Like a natural system, the device transcends the performance of individual neurons achieving 95% reliability from a collection of 40% reliable components. Rotem thinks that this provides a useful model for real brain function. The existence of a threshold level for activation plays a central role in neuronal computation, he says. In his logic gates and real brains alike, many neurons contribute to generate a signal strong enough to excite another group of neurons, he says. Charles Stevens at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, is not so sure, pointing out that real brain circuits do not resemble logic gates. 
but achieving reliable performance from lab-grown neurons is still impressive, he adds. There is a sort of fascination with neural networks grown in culture, and this paper improves on the usual random networks, he says. Rotem says that brain cell logic circuits could serve as intermediaries between computers and the nervous system. It's difficult to physically interface neural prosthetics with live neurons, he says. Brain implants can allow the paralysed to control robot arms or to learn to talk again, but suffer a drop-off in performance when scar tissue coats their electrodes. An intermediate layer of in vitro neurons interfacing between man and machine could be advantageous, he says. Archaeologists find 1,700-year-old Iron Age wooden artefacts in Sweden. And this comes from the www.archaeologynews.org website. Stockholm. A team of archaeologists digging near the planned expansion of a roadway in Sweden have uncovered 1,700-year-old artefacts made of wood, making them some of the oldest man-made wooden objects discovered in the country. According to a report in the local, the find was made near Alvangen in western Sweden and provides additional clues about how farmers in the region lived during the Iron Age. We've found hundreds of wooden objects, including a wooden wheel. We're coming much closer to the people of the Iron Age with this find. We're really getting up close and personal, said Benk Nordvist, an archaeologist from the Swedish National Heritage Board. Archaeologists began exploring the area in connection with plans by the Swedish Road Administration to expand a section of the E45 roadway. The area once served as the only waterway connecting the sea to a system of inland lakes, made up by present-day Lake Varnern, one of Sweden's largest lakes. As a result, it attracted settlers and traders from the Stone Age right up to modern times, according to the board. The wooden artefacts were found buried in damp and oxygen-deprived clay and have required archaeologists to take extra steps to ensure their finds can be properly preserved once removed from their muddy surroundings. Additional digs just to the north include an excavation of remains from the Bronze Age and another which covers settlements from the latter part of the early Stone Age. And to finish up this week, just a couple of short excerpts from the age.com.au Oddspot website. Saturday, October the 25th. A legendary Italian restaurant in New York turned 100 this week, and so did its prices. John's of 12th Street celebrated with a lunch menu costing pennies, the same as it did in 1908. The chicken parmigiana dish went for 75 cents, instead of the regular $14.95. And from Friday, October the 24th, 2008. 
a Chinese martial arts enthusiast, says he can now blow out candles with his eyes. Wearing specially made airtight goggles, Ling Chungjiang, 35, of Kaifeng, blows air out of his eyes through a hose attached to the goggles and can put out 12 candles in one minute. Well, there you go. There's a good party trick. Anyway, that's the end of Origins episode 53. I hope you enjoyed today's show and I'm looking forward to meeting you all again in episode 54. If you do subscribe to the premium edition, the rest of your show will be coming up shortly. Bye for now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.